日本史学習に最高にもってこいのサイトサムライアーカイブスポッドキャストへようこそ美しい自然にあふれてる縄文時代から波乱万丈な幕末まで全時代を網羅して日本史の隅から隅まで一緒に語り合いましょうでは早速日本史の世界へ Hey, welcome yet again to another exciting episode of the Samurai Archives podcast.、Uh, this is Chris here with Travis, Nate, and Forrest. Hello. Hello. Yo. <laughs> yes. So, today we're going to talk about、uh, a subject which、uh, should be interesting、uh, daimyo domains as independent <laughs> states. So, when I, when I sort of started studying 16th century Japan, I had one of the really naive view of Uh, the daimyo were on a big game board and they each had the goal of taking over Japan and they basically fought it out with each other until finally one single daimyo came out on top. There can be only one. But the reality was,、uh, of course, it, it, it isn't so simple as all the daimyo were in competition to take over the country. They all had their own specific goals.、Uh, some of them were basically just wanting to keep the status quo, some of them wanted to just maintain their internal politics, hold on to what they have, and not get crushed by their daimyo. So, it's actually quite a complicated situation that was going on in the 16th century. So, today we're going to kind of be talking about that situation and how daimyo sort of dealt with other daimyo and dealt with the, I guess, maybe the nation as a whole. And there's a lot of ways we can go with this. So, we'll just sort of open up our, our roundtable discussion on Sengoku daimyo and sort of get a theoretical conversation going and kind of see where it goes. Anyone want to jump in with a. Well, I mean, I, I think. We're not going to necessarily limit it to Sengoku, although that's where most of my examples are going to come from. But, you know. but I feel like we've discussed that, the Edo situation in a previous podcast already, haven't we? We, we have. In、okay. terms of the, the, the domain as state. And as Still, as our Edo period expert, it is your responsibility to make sure that you bring it in as appropriate. All the time. Yeah. As <laughs> no, no, as appropriate. So, like, once every f- 10 podcasts. But.、Uh, <laughs> Okay, so I guess、um, let's, let's first tackle when, when someone first gets into Japanese history in 16th century Japan, be it through Nobunaga's ambition or Turnbull or what have you, the impression you get getting in at the basic level, the ground level, is all, all the daimyo wanted to take over Japan and they, they were all formulating plans to do so and they all were basically fighting it out in order to take over Japan. I'm not sure that that's true in any historical period in any place. I mean, I, I, true, for the most part. I mean, I don't want to make broad treatment statements. But, but in, in the case of 16th century Japan, that's, that's kind of the impression that's given. Yeah, no, and, and I had that impression as well when I first got into this, when I was first playing Samurai Swords, the board game. Oh, yes. Or whatever.、Awesome. Um, but I think most people, most daimyo, just wanted to hold on to the territory they already had and, you know, and, and, and kind of be left alone or. or, or I, I think, to put on my, my contemporary politics hat, I, I think a lot of that comes from a very simplified understanding of、uh, realist or neo realist international theory. Where, and I don't know if I've talked about this on any of the podcasts before, probably I have, but if in, in a realist view of the world,、uh, and by realist I'm not talking about somebody who, you know, Concentrates on real things. It's, it's, it's international theory. theory term,、so. yeah. yeah, political theory term. So,、um, in, a, in a realist view of the world, then、uh, all states are in competition with each other for limited resources. And the only way to guarantee that your state has access to those resources is to dominate other states.
Mm. Um, so, for instance, if you're looking at Japan uh, during the 16th century, then a realist would look at Japan as a game board. And the only way that you can guarantee your security is to completely dominate the game board. Um, because mm. even if you're not uh, a th you know, threatened directly at this moment, you could be later on. So rather than let the opponent, so to speak, uh, get enough strength to take you over, it is better for you to take over them and just rule everything. Uh, and this is kind of the dominant thought that, led, that leads to you know, concepts of imperialism and mm. you know, let's take over the entire world. And I mean, this is what sure, you know, that kind of thing is based off of. So, um, so I think that's where you know, a lot of that idea uh, that we see comes from is that, is that it is a, you know, a competition between individual locations and, and whether you want to take over your neighbor or not, he wants to take over you. Mm. So the only way that you can guarantee your survival is to beat him to the punch, so to speak. But do you think that most people, and I mean, we're getting into the motivation of individual daimyo, so it gets very complicated, and who knows what anybody in particular was thinking, that looking at their diaries and things, but it, I mean, I would imagine that there were very, very few figures who were actually aiming to take over Japan, I per se. That, I think, that's I right think, I think yeah. that a lot of daimyo, I mean, I think now that, now that we're trying to talk about it, it seems likely that a lot of daimyo were sort of thinking, okay, here's my borders. My borders are not secure. In order to be more secure, I need to take over a little bit more land. Right. You know, or, 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 or I need to destroy that one clan. Or, yeah, the, the Suzuki next to me are, I don't trust them. Right. So I'm going to take them out in order to secure that right. portion. And, of course, that will increase my size, you know, my right. land holdings as well, yeah, but so it, all, it removes a threat is the yeah. more important So thing. you're yeah. looking at particularly what threats you need yeah. to eliminate. But, of course, once you expand your land then you have more land to to defend, more land right. to, to secure, and so you come into contact with new neighbors. Right. Right. And so it just kind of expands from there. So I would imagine that that's how it goes. But there's a lot of people like like the Shimazu who, I mean, I, I just, I don't know the ins and outs of it, but I would imagine that Shimazu, while they may have attempted to take over Kyushu at times, they weren't really like, oh, I'm gonna take over Japan. They were just like, okay, now that we've already submitted to Hideyoshi, we're just gonna hang out over here not even participate in Sekigahara. We're just going to hang out over sure. here and, and hope that everybody leaves us alone. Now, I'm sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, uh, Forrest and I were actually talking about this earlier, and uh, he had some interesting perspectives on a lot of this is uh, sort of internal pressures and the inter from the daimyo's domain that actually sort of precipitated a lot of what right. was going on. Because certainly, uh, you say the motivations of individual daimyo's, and I think the devil is in the, in the details, and it, it would be very, very difficult. To, there, there's no blanket explanation mm. for why so-and-so fought so-and-so. Now certainly security was a big part of it, but as you said, the internal pressures, you needed to keep your own generals happy. Even if you, if you look at oh. the Takeda as, a, as an example, kind sure. of That's run with that. You take over another province or, or part of a province, you can now reward your best uh, retainers with more titles, more land, and so forth. It opens up access, of course. I mean, the, the biggest advantage <coughs> I would assume for the Takeda in taking uh, Suruga was uh, access to the ocean, which of course is enormously oh, important. Yeah. Uh, that's Certainly. something worth fighting a war over, right? Right. There. Um, and so it, it is. I, I do think one does have to look at individual daimyo to an extent, um, while while still suggesting that they all did see themselves as 
at least nominally independent rulers right. of independent domains. But right. Mm -hmm. the, um, the, the, that brings up an interesting point uh, because, like, to bring back theory into this, where, where as a realist would, would answer you, um, Travis, and, and say, um, even if the individual daimyo himself wasn't thinking of these things, there he's still acting in the in a in a realist manner by sure, sure. taking over his neighbor and you know securing himself because the next you know after he does that he's going to look at what's the next threat and oh, yeah, go yeah, take that person over or or, or whatever. Right, right. Um, the what I would uh, and if he doesn't do that, then he's going to eventually fail and right be and taken over himself. Yeah. What what you bring up Forrest is, is interesting because um, that when you mentioned the internal dynamics and having to deal with internal pressures um, that's actually something that I, I'm I'm working on right now as a, as a project for one of my classes in um, applying uh, constructivist theory uh, which is another international relations theory um, which uh, essentially says that the way that states act is all based on social construction. There's no necessarily this is how states have to act. They don't have to go take over their neighbor in order to secure their borders and, and, and guarantee their survival, mm -hmm. as a realist says. But because that's the way that states have been trained to act by history, they see that in the past other states have died because they didn't do that. So now they think they have to do that. So that's what leads us into this cycle of states trying to take over. I mean, that's just one example. But the other part of it, and the part that fascinates me about the about the, that particular theory of international relations, is that it focuses very heavily on the sub-state level. So um, whereas uh, realism, in particular, but also uh, liberalism or neoliberalism, uh, focuses on a state as an individual actor and doesn't really look at the internal decision-making processes and what drives things mm -hmm. in and internally. It's all, this state makes this decision because of these external right. pressures put on it by state, you know, this, the, the, so, you know, the next state. So the Takeda are making this decision because of what the Oda and the Uesugi are doing next to them. And they're, so they're reacting to those external pressures. That's primarily what, especially realism, but also neoliberalism to a, to a point focuses on. Um, a constructivist would look at it and say, well, I mean, kind of like you just brought up, the Takeda, you know, Takeda Shingen has to make his generals happy by not only providing a secure environment for them, but providing more land for them to, you know, to divvy out for their own domains, for their own subdomains underneath him. So if he doesn't go take over Suruga, then he doesn't have any other land to reward with them with, and they become disgruntled and may look to overthrow him, or, you know, the the uh, you know with, with with various things. So that's that's actually what I'm working on right now is trying to find not only uh, retainer pressures but you know merchant pressures and peasant pressures that um, caused daimyo as heads of state to make uh, various decisions and, and so forth. So. Yeah, that's my theoretical portion of the evening. What What have you found in terms of merchant pressures? I'd be interested. Right now, what I'm what I'm trying to find and what I'm trying to really look for is like for for instance with um, uh, the uh, Rakuichi no Rakuza, um of Oda Nobunaga, 
and how he would set up these free trade zones, essentially around his castle towns, mm. um, in order to attract the economic uh, benefit that came from having the merchants who would gather there, because it's a it's a free tax zone, it's a no tax zone, so they can go and operate there with no taxes, but it still raises the economic value of the area. Sure. So, so Nobunaga is getting a benefit as well. So that's one aspect that I'm looking at, where he makes economic policy decisions that almost seem counterintuitive in the way that he's not taxing it because you know right. that's what normally would happen is well I want the benefit of it so I'm gonna t I'm gonna tax it um, so that's one aspect that I'm looking at I, there's also um, I haven't had a chance to delve into it really uh, deeply just yet but I, I'd like to look at uh, Suzanne Gay's book on uh, merchants in in Kyoto uh, because there was definitely a political aspect. Uh, to them, to their to their group activity, and uh, how they both interacted with the court and with the different uh, daimyo who held sway in Kyoto at various mm -hmm. times, whether we're talking about the Miyoshi or the Ashikaga, or or whomever. So, um, you know, plus also looking into Sakai and how Sakai negotiated its status as a mm -hmm. almost an independent city uh, with various daimyo who were in power at any given time. So that from the merchant aspect, that's kind of where I'm looking right now. Mm. You know, some of that I'm sure is like the uh, the the negotiated supply. I, you know, they continued supplying uh, Oda Nobunaga with firearms as a you know, and gave him. He was um, he actually put a, you know uh, a Bugionian, uh an administrator in charge of Sakai, but mm. with the understanding and, and kind of agreement that they had. That he was in nominal charge, but that the merchants there had pretty much, you know, freedom of decision-making power, and, and so forth. That I'm not going to meddle too much in what you do, as long as you continue supplying us and and and, and so on and so forth. So, so th those kinds of things from a merchant aspect. Anyway, uh, I want to also uh, thanks of the Hojo's efforts to turn Odawara into a, a hub for yeah. for that region. So. It's interesting as well. Now, I do think, um, to go back to the individual daimyo for just a moment, I think that as to the chessboard idea, I think, well, we know that Imagawa Yoshimoto had some idea of taking the capital. Now, whether or not he ever envisioned, I'm going to conquer all of Japan, he certainly had some interest in taking Kyoto to, for, for, for the greater benefit of his clan. And of course, we have the example of Nobunaga. Now, and of course, the issue of what is all of Japan at this time. Yes. I mean, I think, right. now that you mention it, it just kind of reminds me, like, yeah. taking the capital means something in a way that, yeah. Anyway, yeah. sorry. Well, continue. just to piggyback off that, it's important to, to, to understand that looking back, that the Ashikaga at no point had complete control over all of Japan. Right. Nor did the Minamoto have control of all of Japan. They right. had a, a negotiated, you yeah. know, nominal sort of situation. status, but there was yeah. there was there was no on, point, yeah. you know, where where like we think of the, the Tokugawa having complete control. Right. Um, think, yeah. Which you know, I'm sure it's, you could even debate it as we we could even debate that as well. But but, but it's importantly different. It is very different from the yeah. you know from the Ashikaga or or even the uh, the. The, yeah. the Minamoto having to appoint a regional deputy in different locations mm -hmm. to manage the region mm -hmm. 
not control it. Yeah. And I'm sure that even under Nobunaga, and I'd be curious if you talk them off, I'm curious uh, if even under Nobunaga and Hideyoshi, at some point when they did quote-unquote control Aradabachwa, I'm sure there must have been some really blurry line somewhere in Tohoku, you know, or was there like a really solid, you know, control in Tsugaru who was reporting back to? Well, at that point, see, what the, the difference is, I think, is that you essentially underwent a change in local control between the Ashikaga Bakfu period right. and the, uh, the sen- you know, through the Sengoku to the point of uh, Nobunaga and Hideyoshi, where um, prior to, you know, say even the Onimur, uh, it was mostly centrally appointed leadership in mm-hmm. different locations. And even if like a, a clan like the Shimazu, who had been in the Kagoshima area forever, even even if they had control of, of, of that local area, it was it was appointed to them. it was appointed to them as well as right. them just having having been there forever. Whereas by you know and and, and people like the Shimazu were exceptions to the rule. Absolutely. Where most of the time it was, you know, were being appointed to random it was, places. It was, and you, and you had competing chains of control because you had, you know, the landholders appointed by the, uh, you know, under the in the Shonen system appointed by the imperial court versus the Jito and and uh, um, the uh, Shugo appointed by Kamakura, mm. um, and then Munamachi uh, the yeah. and and you know, and you had different people being moved around and so forth. Whereas. Um, to use Tohoku as an example, you know, when Hideyoshi uh, consolidated his control over what we consider Japan today right. minus Hokkaido, you know, the Date submitted to him, mm-hmm. but they had control of their domain. Uh, uh, it, it was merely a, hey, we'll submit to you as head of, of the national okay. coalition. But, but, as as a agreement that we get to keep what we've got and but we can maintain but, but we can consider the date control in Mutsu as being sort of a more sort of solidly part of yes Hideyoshi's whatever yeah I, mean, I would it's, I would it's say it's not, so, this, yeah. it's not the kind of situation where the further you go north the less likely you're going to find people who actually are going to answer to you you know right. this sort of like this sort of uh, northern Fujiwara kind of situation or anything like that. Right. right. I mean, there would be varying levels of of it. Uh, nominally, nominally so there were. But nominally, they, were, they, they, they right. nominally there was some pretty. They would all control. have said, "Yep, Hideyoshi's the boss," right. and well, yeah, I just I may not have to answer as closely to him as somebody who's you know right, right, right. But but they would the Chuba region or something. Yeah. But they but they had control of their own region pretty solidly. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Now, um, to return for a moment to uh, the the concept of quote, conquering Japan, unquote. And again, we have we have some president to, to believe that, that Imagawa had loftier ambitions, perhaps, than many of his contemporaries. And of course, we all know the story of Nobunaga. Now, it it's, seems to me that ultimately Nobunaga, and by extension Hideyoshi, uh, w- was a snowballing effect. That they had a series of conquests that opened doors to greater conquests. And as it snowballed and got bigger and bigger, perhaps Nobunaga really did at some point say, I could take 
the whole cake. Mm -hmm. And and maybe even that affected the daimyo around them saying, wait a second, we could actually conceivably take over the country, not just our little area. Maybe maybe that that's what you do see generally as the sixteenth century develops, you do see that the emergence of larger and larger states that as the little guys are either destroyed or they're absorbed. So that clearly as time went on there were pressures to uh, say from 1550 on, there were there were pressures to to consolidate and to expand. And now, as you said, those pressures perhaps I think again are sort of the most interesting. Could be some of the most interesting things to look at. And again, you right. might have to look at it from an individual right. daimyo standpoint. But I I wonder if anybody thinks was there anybody else who really did think big. I I would not be surprised if there were. Um, I think the the caution that I mean we'd all throw out there is the assumption that everyone was. Well, actually, if um, I can jump in with something, yeah. If you look at the Mori clan, yeah, I was. Uh, kind of, damn you! Sorry, to bring them up. Okay, no, well. no, that's great. They're a great example. <laughs> yeah, if you look at the Mori clan of uh, Western Japan, you you get the impression distinctly that Mori Motonari never had any interest in really capturing a lot of lands. His main goal was survival and he he did a lot, he went a long way towards making sure that his, his clan survived and any lands that they eventually took over was basically uh, sort of a, a result of this attempt to survive. Well, and and, and, and it wasn't like yeah. this loftier goal, I'm going to take over, you know, as much land as I can. To the point where, it, I mean, it's rather famously documented that he, he you know, on his deathbed passed on to his grandson, Teremoto, you know, the instruction that, you know, do not march on the capital, that, you know, hold what you've got uh, and keep the, the clan alive and going, that, that national, you know, I mean, admonishing him, his, his grandson, who was going to take over um, the clan to say, that, you know, taking over the rest of Japan should not be your goal. Um, what, I, I think it's an interesting, um, would be an interesting question to think, like someone like Imagawa Yoshimoto, uh, obviously wanted national control, but what did he conceive of as national control? Especially at that point in Japanese history, right? If he if he actually successfully arrived there, would would that have accomplished anything in the big, big picture? Would everyone say, "Oh, he's in control of Kyoto. We will bow down to him now"? Would would Oda Nobunaga and Mori Motonari and would all of them be like, "Okay"? It's war's over. We'll just submit. Well, I, I mean, I don't I think really obviously think, not. Because yeah, I don't think that's not like everybody bowed down to Oda Nobunaga once he got control. Of Kyoto. Exactly. So would, would uh, Imagawa Yoshimoto really have accomplished anything no, by taking Kyoto? No, but I think I think that's an important point to 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 question as to what would he have thought he would have accomplished? Was right. you know Kyoto was possession of Kyoto enough to in his mind? Or did, did he think, was Kyoto only a starting point? You have to have the, the control of the capital as a base mm -hmm. for legitimacy. And yeah, the legitimacy of the emperor. Right. And then you can, you can then impose your will on the rest of uh, Japan, which I think Oda Nobunaga came a good 
portion of the way to do it. Now, so. Maybe, uh, uh, apropos, perhaps Yoshimoto assumed that once he arrived in Kyoto, his legitimacy thereby would be such that the other daimyo would fall in line. But he may have seen it in, in, in that light. Rather naive, of course, we know now, but right. perhaps he did assume that by taking Kyoto, that that would make him de facto uh, ruler right. of Japan, mm -hmm. or military ruler of Japan. Right. I, think, I think the fact that even as late as like the 1850s, we're still questioning the idea. You know, we're still in a situation where we're not really 100% to the idea of having a Japan, quote unquote. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, throughout the Edo period, and I'm saying, which, I, and I don't think that these things changed that much in the 1830s, 1840s, 1850s, um, up until Bakamatsu, right? I, I mean, all I'm trying to say is that if we can discuss in the Edo period, or we can question the Edo period, the extent to which anybody believed that there was a such thing as where is the borders of Japan? What is all of Japan? What 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 kind of extent does the Tokugawa really control mm -hmm. all of Japan? Quote unquote. Mm -hmm. um, the fact that we can discuss that and question it and debate it for the 1830s, 1840s means that you, you, know, you could absolutely fifth, debate it in the 1600s. Means century. that means that sure, right? Exactly, exactly. So, I mean, I'm, I think it's a perfectly valid. I'm not arguing against anything. I think it's a perfectly valid point question what it is yeah. what does it mean to take Kyoto because you know the again like the Tokugawa I mean they, they fought really they worked really hard to do all kinds of things in the 1600s through 1620s 1630s to establish their legitimacy to show that even being based in Edo they had the support of the emperor and all this kind of stuff um, but ultimately they didn't really you know uh, uh, 100% control, you know, there was still a lot of daimyo um, um, independence within their domains, mm -hmm. as we've discussed in a previous podcast, so there's sort of that... Yeah, I, I think it's that, important to understand that it's a continuum yeah. um, of, of, of daimyo independence, that, yeah. that uh, and, and that at, at no point did anybody, I mean, you know, it's, it's not like, you know, Shogun Total War, where you can just, like, Conquer down the map as you go and turn it all green or blue or purple or whatever is whatever you're, you know, or, you know or, or, until or, the geisha comes after you. Yeah, or like let's not go into that. Or like or like in a game where the game board consists of Japan and you know where the borders of the game board are. That even 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 better. Right. Point. Yeah, certainly. Um, I mean, um, I don't think anybody was. Well, Hideyoshi had his ideas. Yeah, but well, most people were not looking to go beyond the borders of the islands. But nevertheless, you know, there's, there, it's, it's that sort of iffy, wavy kind of bit. Well, to, to, to continue to use Yoshimoto as sort of a theoretical sounding board for us. Sure. sure. It, is it possible that maybe he assumed that basically the, 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 the Ashikaga were weak, and so that if you supplanted them in Kyoto with a strong leader, which he no doubt assumed himself to be, that that, that would sort of set things to right in and of itself. Quite like possible, one yeah. wonders that that mm. he didn't necessarily envision. Well, again, you know, I'll be turning the map, you know, uh, light blue or something. You know, the whole, the whole map's going to be mine now. But that yeah. uh, that I wonder, did they did they see the situation as being uh, that an, the rest of the daimyo would settle down and right and, you know, now that I'm and, here and you know I'll I'll, make, yeah. I'll put out some edicts. Well, edicts and, well, well, that also makes you wonder then what what uh, around this time then in the 1560s. Was there just not enough of a civil war going on that someone could actually make the assumption that, you know, whatever disturbances are happening would basically just be quelled by someone strong taking Kyoto? Because you'd think if, if, it, if it was constant 
severe civil war, constant battles, then they would realize that it's just so fractured that something as simple as that's not really going to do anything. So, what, what was or, it just so? Hmm? Or everything is so fractured and at the conflict at the local level that if somebody is strong enough, because everybody's focused, like we talked about earlier, on securing that next valley over from you know a threat, and, and they're not really looking too far afield. So if somebody like Imogawa Yoshimoto comes in, takes, you know, ha has enough strength to move from uh, Suruga and Totomi to Kyoto, then obviously he's the big dog in, in Japan, and I mean, I mean, I'm not saying that I think that this is the way things were, but this might have been the thought process that, you know, if I can come in and and take Kyoto, then everybody who's focused on their own little local battles will see the might that I have and and realize that resistance is futile to use the Star Trek phrase. But um, the other thing that I would I would question. Um, that just popped into my head as an interesting question is, in what form did Yoshimoto imagine he would take control? Mm. Like, is he coming in? Because by this point, by the 15, by 1560, when, when, you know, he makes his move, not only do we have a history of military leaders coming in and co-opting the power of the imperial government to justify their rule as the shogun, but we have two sets of um, bakufu of, of, of shogunal governments that have then devolved into somebody else co-opting the power of the shogun to justify their control of the, the government. Right. And it happens by the Hojo co-opting the Minamoto and then the, the Ashikaga being co-opted by um, I don't know, take your pick, the Yamana, the Hosokawa, you know, whoever is holding the Kanrei position Kanrei. at that particular mm -hmm. time, right? So um, since the Imagawa were one of the families that were one of the main supporters of the Ashikaga historically and held these various positions of, um, you know, Imagawa Ryoshin holding the, the Kyushu Tandai position right. uh, a couple hundred years before this. So was his intent to go to Kyoto and then prop up the Ashikaga mm -hmm. as his form of legitimacy? So give support mm -hmm. to... Uh, um, I think it was uh, Yoshi Teru, who was I don't know. Yoshi. Yoshi Teru, I believe. Yeah. yeah. We're talking around 1560. 1560, because yeah. uh, he was assassinated in 1564 or something. Mm -hmm. I'm gonna say. But uh, you know, was it was it to eliminate the Ashikaga and set himself up, or was it to, much like Oda Nobunaga did with Yoshiaki, go and be the strongman for um, the Ashikaga? Um, and and thereby get the um, get the the double legitimacy uh, and 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 so forth. So, I, I mean, I, you know, it's interesting from that angle as well. I think it, 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 it as you say it it is it is an interesting question because I think hypothetically, if Yoshimoto had reached Kyoto, I think his position perhaps might have been slightly different in degrees of legitimacy already. Because Nobunaga truly was seen as an upstart, virtually unknown at the time. Whereas certainly, and the, certainly that's the root of a lot of the mm -hmm. resistance to him. Of course, as we know, the Imagawa were an old and respected family, and perhaps he did um, see himself as supplanting the Ashikaga. Um, I mean, again, just, just as a hypothetical. 
in the sense that perhaps he, he may have felt he did it. He already had the legitimacy, the, the, the respectability of the Imagawa nation. Sure. Whereas Nobunaga, I don't think, felt at liberty to do so, of course, at least at first. Right. Now, if we were to look at some of the other dying, now, since taking the populist, I guess a populist view of it, where um, the game war view, and you, you always see in popular literature that Takeda Shingen burned to conquer Kyoto. Mm -hmm. um, I, I don't really see any evidence of that personally. I don't see any, I, I wonder how much of that is in retrospect. To make it almost to make a good story. Yeah, um, yeah. I, I mean, I think most of that idea comes off of the supposed uh, quote on his deathbed, or or, or right. raise the know, flags at yes, Sito Bridge. I, you know, <laughs> I wish I could have seen my flag flying at, o o over yeah, Sito Bridge, or, or you know, wherever the, the which yeah. is a, a point in Kyoto. Mm -hmm. um, and that could be as. You know anything from that was his burning desire his entire life, and he's expressing regret that he didn't get to do it. To him being deliriously ill. To him being deliriously <laughs> ill. To him, uh, you know, later in life, seeing what Nobunaga has done, mm. and thinking, you know, because like, hey, I might have been able to do that if I had actually tried. Until 1570, he and Nobunaga were allied. They had a marriage alliance. Mm -hmm. um, you know, where where they had children intermarried. So, and at least until uh, Kenshin uh, gave him a good uh, beating, he, yeah, <laughs> he, he had the, might have had the wherewithal to do it. Yeah, so um, I mean, he was looking at you know, it, it might not have even been on his radar screen as a concept until he sees, well, this guy who started with you know a thousand soldiers in Owari and happened to get lucky against Imagawa Yoshimoto. Manage to do it. What could I have done had I, yeah. you know, started this a little bit? Quit. Mm -hmm. After all, <laughs> I would have I stopped digging around with Uesugi Genshin and gotten my butt in gear. Yeah. Um, but uh, so I mean, there, there's. I think it makes, like you said, it makes for a good story, a good image, mm -hmm. um, and also I'm not sure what the. The source is for that being his quote. It's the Koyogunkan. Is it the Koy? Because if yeah. it's the Koyogunkan, then that may be nothing more than, uh, you know, see, Takeda Shingen had these wonderful dreams and was going to lead us to victory over, and then his son came and dicked it all up. Right, right. <laughs> exactly. So that, uh, you know, a purely uh, a regional campaign to, to capture uh, Noda Castle turns yeah. into his glorious march to, to Kyoto. <laughs> True. Right, and, right. And in the same way that uh, Wasugi fighting, uh, uh, Kenshin fighting, you know, again, essentially a regional fight in uh, Kaga turns into his, his march. But only, but just like Shingen, right on the cusp of greatness, he dies tragically in a, <laughs> what could have been, you know. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Dies tragically in, in an outhouse. Yeah. <laughs> or or how, yeah, however he managed to, however he passed on. I mean, now as an aside, I do find Oesugi Kenshin a very interesting example of um, kind of breaking the mold of, I guess you would say, the popular conception. Because he, he wasn't someone who, he certainly did ultimately take territory. But he was, he was somebody that did seem content largely with what he had. I mean, he campaigned furiously, but for the most part in support of allies in the Kanto. Um, and um, you feel that he was drawn into uh, uh, Noto and, and, and uh, Echu and, and so forth. 
uh, local politics, basically. Well, I mean, if you look at how the whole conflict between the Usugi and the Takeda started, I mean, that's exactly it. He mm -hmm. was not in direct conflict with the Takeda until the um, the northern Shinano uh, minor daimyo, or you know, who controlled mm -hmm. those areas, came into conflict with Shingen and looked to him right. to as a as a Balancer, and this would be what the, um, the Murakami clan, I guess. Murakami and some others, yeah. Mm -hmm. But um, you know, a few others, yeah. yeah. And they were basically, yeah, and they were basically like, oh, we need some help down here. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was like you know, we will fall underneath you if you will guarantee our land's protection from mm -hmm. uh, Shingen. So, um, I, I mean, I think a lot of that was 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 going on. And looking at those, I mean, if you want to look at those individuals as as minor state leaders. Um, you know, that's a very, uh, you know, that would be just like uh, some, or 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 even, um, you know, South Vietnam going to the United States mm. and saying, "Help us against the mm -hmm. North Vietnamese," uh, you know, or or you know, please protect us from the onslaught of communism or or whatever. Um, in both cases, not very successful, but um, yeah. So, so then now, if we've looked at, um, let's see, I'm sort of almost uh, rattling off the big names, the potential contenders. And sure. So I think we can reasonably say that um, neither Kenshin nor Shingen uh, had their life, it, it, whatever they may have thought uh, internally, like maybe they daydreamed about taking over Japan, but, but for the most part, uh, you know, regional affairs kept them from ever realistically trying right. that. Now, you brought up the example of the Mori. And in fact, uh, at the beginning of the 16th century, the Mori had a sizable military contingent in Kyoto supporting mm -hmm. the, the Shogun and left once once the, the, his term was was over. I wish I could remember the, his name. Are, uh, are, do you mean the Ouji? Uh, no, the the um, because the Ouji were um, oh yeah the uh, the Ouji yeah, yeah the, the Mori sent troops the, the Mori sent troops right. as, as part of as their part of the Ouji contingent yeah, and the yeah and the Ouji uh, uh, Yasuhiro I believe but it, yeah. uh, it was Yasuhiro or Yoshihiro um, I you've got an internet right there I do but I'm lazy um, but, but, but uh, they, yeah if you if you read um, Arneson's book on mm -hmm. uh, the medieval Japanese daimyo which is covers the I mean he uses the Oji as his case study he talks about it. but then now granted they were to some extent uh, pressed by the Imago but they uh, they willingly left when they returned home um, so again I think we can remove the Mori um, yeah. as as a potential contender and uh, I think Modachi Chozakabe, I think, was purely from, you know, regional. You know, I think he, he took Shikoku because he could. As Nobunaga said, he was a bat on a birdless island. So he, he, he did he, it because he could. He, he, <laughs> I love that. Um, yeah, I mean, well, and, and, and uh, Chozakabe Motachika, I mean, you look at, at what happened with him. I mean, he was struggling so hard for so many years to gain sh control of Shikoku. As soon as he got it, Hideyoshi's knocking on the door saying, thank you for pacifying all of Shikoku. I will take half of it now. Uh, he, he's such a tragic story in so many ways. He really <laughs> is. Um, and of course, he said that, uh, that, that Shimizu took advantage, I think, of a lot of, a lot of different um, circumstances to conquer Kyushu. But again, I don't envision uh, Yoshihisa saying, "Okay, boys, that's it. You know, we're going to take the whole the whole thing." Yeah, I, I think especially in the, the remote regions like that. I mean, they they whether or not they had any 
I mean, if you if we want to continue the game analogy, um, you know, it, it's like when you're playing um, Total or, or Sengoku or, or any of these games. I mean, if, if you're in an outward region like that, you have to secure your region first mm -hmm. before you right. send ships or troops or whatever off to go do anything anywhere else. And I, I think that's really the stage that they were in. And, and um, you know, the Chosokabe may have been thinking about what their next step might have been post controlling Shikoku. Hey, are we going to send anything, you know, right. are, are we going to move to, towards Kyushu? Or are we going to move anything across mm -hmm. the Inland Sea? Maybe they got that far in their thought process. But, um, you know, same with the Shimazu. As they were pressing on the Otomo and the Yuzoji and getting to the northern edge of, of Kyushu, maybe they were then thinking of crossing over the mm -hmm. uh, the the straits and, and onto Honshu or right. or challenging the Chosokabe in Shikoku, but they were so far away regionally from mm -hmm. the center that right. it would have taken a long time for them to, to do anything to, to move And logistically, once you control even the tiniest bit of another island, yeah. it, it's, it's so... I mean, I'm speaking from, like, you know, risk or something. Right. It's so hard to maintain that. The, the motive that I, that I can only assume yeah. that that yeah. would have been the case. You know, that would continue to be the case. Yeah. Well, and and I think with that kind of you're not you're not going to send ships all the way to Kyoto and take over just Kyoto and Kyushu, and then try to hold that. Yeah. I mean, I think that with that kind of mindset, where you you you're only looking at, you know, it's conquer or be conquered. There is no alternative. Um, overlooks is the fact that, um, you know, like Barry talks about in her book on Hideyoshi. That he almost that what he basically creates is a federation. Um, now, did he have the ability to go wipe out the Shimazu? Yes. Why didn't he? Because they had built up enough strength that it was, while even though he could have, it would have wasted too much time and energy and and, mm -hmm. and so on and so forth. And there really wasn't any reason to, as long as they agreed to let him be the overall head of, you know, whatever. That they agreed he was above them, and that they would. You know, owe fealty to him. They they got to keep a good portion of their land. Same thing with Chosokabe. Same thing with everybody. And then the one case where we see a daimyo um, family go against that is the Hojo. Mm -hmm. And by that point, he's gotten everybody else to buy in, mm -hmm. so he can just wipe them off the map, essentially. And uh, but the reason he's able to do that to the Hojo so thoroughly is because everybody else has said. I don't want that to happen to me, so yeah, we'll 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 hold what we got, mm -hmm. and that that's a viable option for survival. Um, I, I actually talked about that in my December paper um, from that from that standpoint that you know buying into the system, the international system with Hideyoshi as its head, was a means of almost a neoliberal concept of of state action for survival in that we can use international agreements and international frameworks. Um, so if you almost look at like Hideyoshi as the UN, um, you know, being an arbitrator between all of these groups, and they all agree to follow what he says as long as they get to maintain their internal domestic control. So. Okay, so that's it for part one of the Sengoku Daimyo as Political State podcast. If you'd like to support the podcast, please check out the links at samuraipodcast.com, and we'll see you in two weeks with part two.